God's truth is and to live out that truth, the more aware I become of my own shortcomings, my own failings, my own weaknesses. But I'm joyful for the very reason that it's God himself who lifts us up out of the, that tangled swamp of our own weaknesses and limitations and into the light of his glory. And I want, want to pray for us right now that he just extend that same grace to each one of us so that we might edify and enrich each other this morning and by doing so empower this community of believers to reflect all the more brightly the light of Jesus into the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I lift up this entire congregation before you now. I lift up everyone as a group and also each individual in their own hearts. I pray for the Spirit to move among us, God, and that I know you've already gone before us in advance, and I just pray that you prepare us. You prepare us in the words that you've given me to speak. You prepare the hearts of everyone to receive those words, to receive the light of your presence into their lives and to edify and enrich them, and to empower them to go out into the world and to be that light in the darkness, Lord. And I lift this up, and we pray this all to you, and we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right. So today, I'm going to take us through some very, very exciting scenarios from Scripture. They involve dynamic encounters between Christians and the world. Now, Pastor Jim kicked off the new year with a great series in the book of uh, Acts. It was a vibrant depiction of the early church, bursting with energy and life, taking shape under the guidance of the apostles. He discussed the importance of intentional, embracing intentional community as a Christian. He talked about the qualities uh, that characterize members of those communities. He talked about what they do together, how they act and it is from this foundational picture of the church taking shape in the beginning of the book of Acts that the ministries of the disciples and the apostles just burst forth onto the scene with unparalleled vitality and power. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three situations encountered in the course of these ministries and what they have to teach us. Now, any one of these scenarios could easily be a sermon unto itself. And in what is quickly becoming my characteristic fashion, I'm going to try and fit the whole universe into like about a half hour or so. So bear with me. I'm going to, uh, I think we can do it because I'm doing this for a reason. I'm doing this for a reason. I want us to see all these interactions side by side so that we can witness the power of the gospel to transform itself into literally any context. You see, in the next few minutes, you will see snapshots of three very different very particular events in which those who have not yet accepted Jesus encounter Christianity. And it is my belief that in holding these three pictures up side by side, we will be refreshed and edified by the working of God which comes to light. And right before I jump into the first, I want to also say that as I'm going through on the screen behind me, you will see some images. These are actually uh, paintings the, of, that depict many of these events. So uh, for my studies right now, I'm in a master's program. My focus is aesthetics. And simply we look at art, we look at beauty, all this kind of stuff. So it's, I get to look at pretty pictures all day. It's wonderful. Uh, and so much of art historically has been beautiful, beautiful Christian art. It's actually only in a modern time that we've really kind of fallen away from that a bit. So a lot of these events that I'm depicting, you will see on the screen behind me. So for those more visual learners, I think you're going to get something uh, to kind of help complement the message in the text that I'm going to give you today. So with that being said, we'll jump to our first scenario. This is a 
in, in Acts chapter 10. So if you're following along your Bibles, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 10. And this is going to be uh, an interaction between Peter, the Apostle Peter, and a Roman centurion. And as we're going to see, this turns out about as perfectly as one could imagine. In fact, this interaction is what I would call the evangelist's dream. This is the evangelist's dream interaction. Uh, See, Luke sets up this account according to two separate narratives. So we begin this narrative with Cornelius. That's the centurion. And as a centurion, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, would have been in charge of about 80 or so men. And one of the ancient Greek historians named Polybius, he writes about what the ideal centurion represents. And he says that they are, quote, not so much to be venturesome and daredevils as natural leaders of a steady and sedate spirit. They do not desire them so much to be men who will initiate attacks and open the battle, but men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their posts. So that's the kind of man Cornelius was. And further, Cornelius is described in verse 2, so this is Acts 10, verse 2, as a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. Now, to me, this is a fascinating, fascinating depiction. You see, what we have here is a Gentile. This is not a Jewish man. This is a Gentile being described as devout, as charitable, and as spiritually engaged in prayer with God. An interesting note is that word for devout in the Greek is eusebes, which comes from this prefix eu, which just means good or well, and then this verb, sebomai. And sebomai is to pay homage, to venerate. So, Cornelius is described as someone who pays due respect to God. He venerates God well, along with his entire household. I mean, this would have included family and servants. And all of this, before he has heard the gospel, before he's had an opportunity to explicitly accept or reject Christ, which is just profound when you think of it. And we're going to hold this thought and see what to make of it a bit later in the passage. So continuing then into verse 3, we, uh, we read that in the ninth hour, which is about 3 in the afternoon, an angel appears to Cornelius. So you're going to see this uh, couple paintings on the screen behind me this, depicting this. This angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So there's two Simons, the one the apostle and the other is a tanner whose house he's staying at. And just a quick note on these uh, images. You see in the top image, that's actually a Baroque painting. The Baroque artists used a, a lot of light and shadow, these heavy contrasts to really elucidate and bring out the intensity of the scene. So you see in both the images, despite their differences, Cornelius is bowed down in deference. His, his uh, weapon is cast to the side. His helmet is on the, ground, uh, on the ground in the one image. These are not things that concern him at the moment. He's before something greater than himself. And in the Baroque painting, you actually see in the shadows, it might be hard to make out, what is a baptismal font, which uh, is kind of a foreshadowing of what's to come. So beautiful images that really bring the story together. So in response to the, the vision, Cornelius sends uh, for two servants and a devout soldier, and he sends them for Peter. And now we switch over, so now we're switching over narratives to Peter himself. So this is noon of the next day, at the noon hour of the next day. He's praying on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. Verse 10, so we jump down to verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, says he was quite hungry and waiting for the food to be prepared. Now, this next part of the story is one of those things that convinces me that God has 
a sense of humor. Because here you have basically Peter who's looking forward to a nice big lunch and maybe he skipped uh, breakfast and maybe it's taking a while for the food to be made. And of course, being on the roof, as the food's being cooked, it's probably likely that the aromas and the smells would have started wafting up and making their way up to him. So he's maybe getting quite hungry at this point. And it's right at that moment when God decides to present Peter with this grand vision of the heavens themselves opening up and this blanket descending down. And what of all things is on this blanket? It's lunch. Lunch, it's lunch is on the blanket. God is giving Peter this, like, this divine lunch. And you see this, uh, this painting here. I think the painter took a little bit of artistic license. You almost see Peter kind of dozing. And it's as if God is sort of surprising him, like with slowly lowering <laughs> this blanket. It's all these animals, these birds and reptiles and, and all kinds of animals on this blanket. So what's on top of that, though, is a voice from heaven tells Peter to get up, kill, and eat. An important detail mentioned in verse 11 is that the sheet is let down by its four corners. Now, what this is, is this is not an accidental detail. This is an idiomatic uh, expression because we might have be used to the expression like the four corners of the earth or the four points of a compass. This is a reference to something that is sweeping and that is going to cover the whole of the earth that's going to happen here. But... Of course, Peter, though, in response, being a good Jew, he knows the laws and the heritage into which he was born and raised, and he knows it's not acceptable for him under those regulations to eat any animal that is deemed unclean, and this sheet of uh, animals included those. And that's exactly what he tells God. He says, God, I can't eat this. This is unclean. And I wonder at this point whether he figured this was some kind of test or some kind of temptation. You know, here's... uh, God bringing this food that Peter knows is unclean right at the moment when he's hungry and maybe his uh, appetites are at their strongest. But the voice of God replies in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this is repeated three times, which we can, again, understand as kind of another idiom, as an expression of the fullness of the Godhead backing this command. So the whole uh, three persons, uh, the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all being behind this command. And if we thought, so if we thought that this whole setup was maybe a little funny or a little uh, interesting, that of all times and places, this is where it happens, right after he tells Peter the third time to get up and eat, we read in verse 16 that the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So, and Luke puts it very mildly at this point. He says, you know, Peter was inwardly perplexed. Peter was inwardly perplexed. I mean, yeah, I I would be. I'd be more than a bit inwardly perplexed. Here I am. I'm sitting on the roof, if I'm Peter, and, you know, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, and then this this great vision appears before me. All this food. I said, no, 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 it's it's unclean. You're not going to trip me up. I know it's unclean. And then, no, God says, no, it's okay to eat. And then they have this argument. It goes back and forth. And he says, no, no, yes, no, yes, no. And the third time, Peter says, okay, I get it, God. You're telling me to do this. So he gets up. Okay, I'm going to eat. And then, just, just gone. It's just gone. So it, it reminds me a bit of that. Uh, there's a movie. Uh, anyone seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? It's a great name for a movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Paul Newman. You know, he's kind of a bit of a, of a rascal in the movie. But he, his guy, character, for those who haven't seen it, he gets into uh, to prison, and the prison guards are really harsh on him, though. And so what they do at one point is they give him a shovel and they make him dig a hole. So he's here digging this hole, you know, for for a long time, for hours, and finally he digs this deep hole and there's all the dirt out. And then the prison captain comes by and says. 
What's all this dirt doing out of my hole? You made a giant big mess all around here. you got to put all that dirt right back in the hole there. So he gets out of the hole, and then he has to shovel all the dirt back in. And by the time he's shoveled it back in, the prison captain makes his rounds again and says, says what did you do to my hole? I don't have a hole anymore. you got to give me my hole back. Take that dirt out of that hole. So they just go back and forth until he's totally exhausted. But it, it almost feels like it's kind of this, like, what is God doing? It's all confusing from Peter's perspective. But Peter doesn't have to be perplexed for long. Because it's right at this moment when Cornelius' men arrive and Peter is brought to the centurion's home. So Peter makes this connection that, okay, this is not unattached. These guys are sending for me. God just sent me this. Something's going to happen. So we're going to skip ahead to verses 34 and 35, still in chapter 10. This is Peter's message to Cornelius. This is how Peter introduces it. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So this introduction is very, very important. It's not something to gloss over. Peter is well aware he's dealing with men and women who are very unaccustomed to the Jewish heritage and tradition. So rather than opening with maybe appeals to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or God's historical development of the nation of Israel, which would have been less accessible to a Roman, Peter chooses to meet Cornelius and company where they're at by emphasizing this broad scope of God's grace, noting that God will look favorably on those who honor him to the best of their ability and knowledge. And by doing this, Peter just pulls away so many of the obstacles for Cornelius coming to faith, coming to Christ. Fearing God and seeking to live in accordance with his righteousness are not dependent on being of a certain race or culture. So Peter continues his message, and we'll pick it up in in verse 36 where we left off. So Peter says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching, uh, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ... He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses for what he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's a lot of stuff, but the main points, Peter continues by declaring that Jesus is Lord of all, that he has demonstrated his power with miracles, that he has helped the oppressed. And recall, Cornelius was described as an almsgiver. He was someone with a heart for the poor, for the impoverished, for the downtrodden. So this would have resonated with him. Jesus himself was one who had an eye for those people. He concludes by affirming the historical truth of the resurrection and that forgiveness is achieved through the name of Jesus. And I love this next part. I love it because even before Peter finishes sharing this gospel, before he gets a chance to even finish, we read in verse 44 that the Holy Spirit immediately fell on all who heard the word. So this this is great, but but again, this is a new thing because these people here are actually the first Gentile converts. 
So this is uncharted waters. This is new territories. And so they don't know what to do at first. Peter and his followers, they say, oh, these, the Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit too? Oh, okay. Um, you know, they don't know what to do. But Peter decides that it is right at this point for them to be baptized. And I love how he puts it. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This is a picture here of Peter baptizing Cornelius. And I can't help but think here of an earlier time when Peter wanted to withhold water from none other than himself. Do you all know the time that I'm thinking of? It's when Christ was washing his disciples' feet. See, Christ tried to wash Peter's feet, and Peter recoiled and stepped back and said, no, 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 you can't. That's not for the master to do. The master doesn't wash the, the disciples' feet. That's, that doesn't make sense. And now we have Peter moving from that hesitancy and that reluctance. He's being the one to initiate and command that these Gentiles be the one that receive water. He says, you can't withhold water from them. See, it's a wonderful, beautiful, thematic reversal where you go from this hesitancy of Peter to this boldness and this conviction. He knows what it's about now. He's getting it together in his life. And he says, no, give them water. They've, they've got the Holy Spirit. Give them baptism. It's, it's a, just a wonderful picture to see. So and before we move on to our next section, I want to highlight some of the major aspects of this conversion experience so we can keep it together. I began by saying that this was the evangelist dream scenario. And in many ways, it is. You see, both parties are prepared through divine visions. I mean, that's always nice. It helps grease up the hinges a little bit. Uh, Cornelius and his household were open to the light of God as much as, they had, uh, as much as they knew it. We saw Peter accommodate the gospel to what his audience would have been most familiar with, that is virtuous behavior. Nevertheless, Peter was confronted with a distinct challenge here as these are the first uh, recorded Gentile converts and so there was a new thing. There were uncertainties. But in delivering what might be called his mere Christianity message, Peter drew his Gentile audience in and set the stage for their conversion. And you know what? It may be that some of us have been or will be so blessed to participate in a similar encounter where you just know deep down that God has set everything up in advance and that all the words that you're saying are just coming so easily and flowing like they've been given to you and that the people that you're talking to are ready in their minds and their hearts to receive the fullness of what God has to offer. Because on Cornelius' end, we can see that God is indeed revealing himself to all people, that he is pouring his light into all the corners of the earth, and that he honors the heart that responds to it. You see, the scriptures say that the skies themselves declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth the work of his hands. And in Romans, Paul reminds us that from the beginning, the invisible power of the creator is visible in the things that have been created. So God is truly speaking to everyone. There's not a person alive that's immune to that. And if someone is like Cornelius and they haven't encountered the gospel of Jesus, but knowing there is a God yearns in their heart to relate to him truly, God will take the good work that he began in them and bring it forward to the day of completion in Christ. So now, keeping that in mind, keeping those details, the, the general idea of that in mind, we're going to jump to a very, very different situation. So now we're moving. We're dealing with the Apostle Paul in Athens. So Peter to Paul, and now we're in Athens. Athens is a very particular place. We're going to find that in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16. So Paul in Athens. Now, 
Whereas Peter had originally been a fisherman, Paul was a Pharisee, had been a Pharisee. That was an expert in the Jewish law. But he was also educated. He was very well-versed in that surrounding Greco-Roman culture of the Mediterranean. And as it turns out, God would use that knowledge in the cause of the gospel. You see, Athens was a center of philosophy, but it was also a center of pagan worship. So much so that it's described that when Peter entered into the city... He saw so many idols everywhere that his spirit was provoked within him, and he was inspired to reason with everyone he could. So he just sees all these distractions out there in the world, and, and I, we can see the same thing. We all, the idols look different, but we have our world of distractions. And he sees it. He sees, oh, they're just looking at the horizontal, and there's no, there's no vertical for them. So he's trying to reason with them and say, guys, guys, you got to get it. And the philosophers got wind of what he was saying, and they were intrigued. So they bring him to this place called the Areopagus, which we call Mars Hill. And this was a rocky outcropping, uh, and basically they used it for judicial functions, they used it for trials, they used it to have debates. It served a lot of public functions. And you see here in, in uh, this painting by Raphael, the Renaissance painter, uh, if you can't see the details on the faces, you can maybe Google it later, because Raphael is careful to capture a whole spectrum of reactions. You have some people who have this kind of look of like, I don't understand, and some people who are laughing at it, and some people who are really amazed at what he's saying. And as we're going to see, that's exactly what happens. And Luke, the writer of Acts, adds this funny little nuance in his description of the Athenians in verse 21, right before Paul's message, saying that the Athenians spent their time in nothing except in telling or hearing something new. Now, that sounds like it could have been written yesterday because, I mean, a lot of us are like that, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We, you know, want to be, well, we want to know what's fresh. We want to know what's exciting. We want to be on the cutting edge. Now, has anyone here ever gotten, like, magazines? I mean, if still magazines out there. Uh, no, uh, magazines of, like, popular science, popular mechanics, anything like that. Similar kind of things. These are always showing the newest technology, you know, what's the most exciting. And I remember... As a little kid, we were cleaning out our garage, and I stumbled on this old box that had the dozens and dozens of these older copies of these magazines, Popular Science, and this was like from the 60s and stuff like that, and I would pour through them, and as a little kid, I was just fascinated by all these inventions that they depicted, and I was even more, what was more fun for me was all these speculations about what the future would be like, you know, the distant future, the year 2017 maybe. You know, <laughs> what the future was going to be like. And by our standards, so much of what was in those magazines is almost kind of comical when you look at that part of it. Like those speculations, like, oh, they, they, they thought it'd be like that now? Well, okay. <laughs> Someone had an imagination. But it's what movies like Back to the Future play off of, if you've seen that one. And my point of bringing all that up is this. There is no surer way of dating yourself than by always trying to latch on to what is new. It's a catch-22. If you're always focused on the newest and the latest, the newest, the latest, you're going to end up dating yourself because if novelty is your only goal, you're guaranteeing that your perspective on what is valuable in life is only going to last as long as you do. It's only going to last as long as you do. But if you set your eyes on what is eternal, then your view will always be relevant and always be fresh and always be applicable in any time or any place. There's an ancient Christian thinker named Boethius. Of course, when I say the name Boethius, you're probably going to think, okay, I can tune out for the next three seconds because he's going to say something I'm not going to understand. But I think that this guy says something very 
simple and very beautiful in its simplicity. Every word is precise. He's writing about eternity. He says, eternity is the complete, simultaneous, and perfect possession of everlasting life. Eternity is the complete, simultaneous, and perfect possession of everlasting life. I think that's beautiful in its precision, in its, its concise point. He goes on to say, it is one thing to progress like the world through life. That's just da 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 latest fad, latest thing, latest thing. Another thing, to have embraced the whole of everlasting life in one simultaneous present. Now, how's that a picture for eternity? Eternity is one simultaneous present. So coming back to Paul, what he intended to give the Athenians was not something new, at least not as they would have understood it. He wanted to give them something eternal. And this comes out in the address that he gives to them, and we're going to look at the beginning of it. So Acts 17, verse 22, Paul says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very, very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, so as Paul had gone through Athens, he had kept an observant eye, and he notices an altar dedicated to an unknown god. See, the Greeks, they worshipped so many deities, they had so many gods in their pantheon, that it eventually occurred to someone along the line that odds were getting higher that they had missed one of them somewhere in that big whole picture. And they figured, okay, and rather than uh, offend this God and invite calamity upon ourselves, we're just going to make a token memorial. And we're going to say to this unknown God, we don't know who you are, but we want to respect you, and here it is. So Paul leaps on this opportunity to, and again, using his awareness of his surroundings as a springboard for the gospel. In verse 28, he even goes one further. So jump down to verse 28. He's speaking of God still. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. See, so what Paul's doing is these are quotations from Greek thinkers. What Paul's doing is he's coming in saying, look, I know your guys. I know your guys' game. I'm not coming in ignorant of what you guys think. I know the guys you hold in really high esteem. And let me point out some of the things that even those guys are saying. The first quote there is from someone named Epimenides, the 6th century B.C. It's a Greek philosopher poet who wrote a poem dedicated to Zeus, and that includes those lines, in him we live and move and have our being. The second is another Greek poet named Aratus. And Paul quotes him here from a work on astronomy, actually. So what he's doing is Paul's taking the poetry and the philosophy and even kind of the early scientific works that they had, and he's bringing that all together and saying, like, look, even even your own thinkers caught a, a piece of it. They caught a tiny little piece of it. So Paul uses them to redirect their thoughts upwards, away from the created things, and up towards the creator himself. And he concludes his message, verses 29 through 31. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Here is the interesting part. It's right at this point when Paul starts talking about the resurrection, that's when people start mocking him. And to me, this is just a huge picture of of how deeply ingrained our prejudices can be. Because here you had people who what they would do is they would take a log of firewood, they'd chop it in half, they'd toss one part in the fire, and then they'd take the other part and they'd scribble a face on it and they'd bow down to that and, and call that a god. That, that's, that's what they would do with idolatry, whether it's wood or stone or metal, whatever it is. They would do that, except when Paul now starts talking about the resurrection, they say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's silly. That's silly. See, what Paul's talking about is certainly a mystery. It's a paradox. But the, it's a symbol, it's a picture of how deeply ingrained they were in their, in their old ways. As much as Paul here modifies his message, and we can already see it's very different from Peter's in a lot of ways, He did not compromise the gospel. He modified his message. He did not compromise the gospel. See, he didn't leave off at just saying, oh, there's one creator God. Don't worship the created stuff. Worship the creator. Have a nice day. You know, he didn't stop there. He goes on because it is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that the good news has life and eternal power. And precisely for that reason, it will be the most challenging to the people who are addicted to the latest fad. The people who just always want the new, they're always going to push back against the eternal. Because the new is an idol. The eternal is God. But the nice news is that not everyone ridiculed his message. Luke actually records a spectrum of responses. He writes that some mocked, but some wanted to hear him again. And even some joined him and believed. Now, contrasted with Peter's interaction, which was more personal and involved everybody getting baptized, coming to faith... This was kind of an academic audience, and their response included a little bit of everything. So we've had these two interactions now, these two distinct market interactions, and now we are turning to the most challenging scenario yet. Paul in Jerusalem for the final time. We're going to kind of end up in Acts 22, and I'm going to give a few little verses that lead up to that, but that's where we're going to end up. This is a darker turn in Paul's ministry. The scriptures indicate that he himself knew that something bad was coming. Something by way of a trial awaited him. Because before leaving the church in Ephesus, he addresses the elders and says kind of forebodingly in Acts, this is Acts chapter 20 right now, verse 22. I hope you're up on your sword drills and making us move around a bit. Uh, In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And to make it even worse, on the way there, on the way now to Jerusalem, Paul and his companions, they run into a prophet by the name of Agabus. This is in Acts 21, 11. And this is what Luke records. And coming to us, he, the prophet, took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And then Luke adds, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, of course, that's exactly what I would have done. I mean, I think a lot like Luke does here, you know. I, w- I would have thought, oh, no, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Good, good, good. We got 
a prophetic word. Before we got to Jerusalem, we got a prophetic word that gave us a warning, saying, only bad and awful things wait for you there, Paul. This isn't good. What we should do now is go somewhere else. There's lots of places that, that need the gospel. There's lots of places we can go. And we'll just wait for that to blow over. And, and even more, maybe we'll wait for a good word. How about that? A good prophetic word to come, saying that everyone's going to give you us a nice big lunch. And uh, then we'll be go. That'll be a good time to go. That's maybe what I would have tried. But, but Paul, at this point, was quite seasoned in his ministry. And he knew full well the true costs of discipleship. He had measured himself long in advance and understood that price that he was prepared to pay. So Paul continues to Jerusalem. And once he's there, the Jews incite a riot based on an entirely false claim. They claim that he brought Greeks into the temple, which would have been offensive to them, but he didn't. They just make that up and they incite a riot. And this time the audience is openly hostile. So we've gone through two situations where there's mixed reactions maybe. This openly hostile. So, so much so that Paul needed a Roman escort to protect him just from being overwhelmed by the crowd. So we turn now to the end of Acts 21 and beginning of chapter 22. Paul gets permission from the Roman guard to speak. And Paul gives a bit longer of an address here, so I'm not going to quote the entire thing. What I am going to do is I'm going to summarize the major points that highlight the distinct reaction that we're going to have. First, what Paul does is he speaks to the Jews in their native Hebrew tongue. It's very important, actually. In verse 2, it tells us that when the crowds heard this, they became quiet. It's almost as if they're all, you know, angry in a mass. And then they start hearing, wait, shh, hold on, hold on. Wait, that's, that's my language. That's my language he's speaking. He's not speaking in the language of the Greeks or the language of the Roman oppressors. He's speaking my language. And it, maybe it reminded them for just a moment that he's one of them. He's one of them. He's not the scapegoat they want him to be. He's, he was a Jew like them. Next, he informs the congregation of his credentials as a former Pharisee. They was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a premier authority in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish law court. This is another piece of common ground that Paul's just trying to build, this, this span of hatred that's been put between him and the people he wants to reach. He's trying to craft a bridge to, to reach them. Finally, he gives them his background in having persecuted Christians. Now, this was not something he wanted to talk about. This was humbling bit of his history. He, he would have been ashamed to be talking about this. But it's a gesture of transparency. He gives them his whole story. It's as if he's saying, like, brothers and sisters, can't you see? I represent the highest aspirations of the Jewish community. There's no one that was more zealous for the law than I was. I was so zealous for the law, I killed the people that I now represent. I'm not where I am today because I wanted to rebel. I'm not here because I didn't know the law. I'm here because God stopped me dead in my tracks, and he showed me I was wrong. So Paul continues by sharing his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And all the while, all this time, the Jews are listening. And I can just nearly imagine that in Paul's heart there flickered for a brief instant this hope that maybe, just, just maybe, his own people would listen to him. Maybe, maybe the prophecy of Agabus wasn't unavoidable, and their hearts would turn right in that moment to Christ, just as his had. But it's here, at the conclusion of the message, that he says the one thing that inflamed every ounce of pride and resentment and bitterness within them. He tells them in verse 21, Acts 22, verse 21, 
And God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. To which they reply, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So deep was their bigotry that the notion of salvation and reconciliation being extended to all people was the one thing they could not tolerate. So at this point, the Roman guard has to intervene to keep Paul from the crowd. And in this instance, there is absolutely no favorable response whatsoever. What's more, this sets into action a chain of events that ultimately leads to Paul's execution in Rome. And we have a painting of that, and I feel it could use some explaining. The artist depicts this very beautifully, I think. They depict the scene, and they're trying to conceal some of the gore from us uh, so as not to be gratuitous. Uh, But you'll notice something in the bottom corner that is kind of a glowing something. That's actually, it's Paul's head. Paul was beheaded, according to tradition. And that might be funny to see by our modern eyes. What that symbolizes and represents is the divine light, the divine radiance of communion with God extending from Paul. And that doesn't end at his death. In fact, it's culminated in a certain sense at his death. His communion with God and his martyrdom is brought to an even greater brightness so that that light that was always within him is now actually physically being shown in the painting. So it's a powerful, powerful picture. But that is where Paul ends up. And it's this kind of interaction that can be the hardest to cope with um, in general. When this people are hostile, you know, you try to represent your faith as best as you can to them, and yet nothing good seems to come from it. And in fact, what's worse is people despise you now more than before for trying. It seems like you took one step forward and two steps backwards. These are the experiences which try us the most. When we, we just can't begin to fathom why. What's the reason? Why is this happening? And yet... God does allow them. He allows them even to his most devoted apostles. Why? Why does God do that? Perhaps one explanation is that God demonstrates to us in these situations that sharing Christ can never be reduced to a mere formula. There is no magical phrase or combination of words and gestures guaranteed to bring a heart to Christ. Because when we share the gospel, we are not performing some incantation or some rhetorical flourish. We are engaged in a divine drama which is gripping and real precisely because it cannot be reduced to an equation. We sow the seeds, but it is for God to bring the plant to life. We are not accountable for the results. We are accountable to do our duty to God and to love our neighbors as Christ himself loved us. That is true freedom. That is true freedom. Even though Paul was led away from Jerusalem in chains, his soul and his spirit was free because he'd done the will of God in sharing who Jesus is, even with his worst enemies, even with the people that hated him. He had held nothing back. He held nothing back. He had given his life fully to God, saying, not my will, but yours be done, God. Now, that's the perspective of eternity. So to briefly try and wrap up what we've covered, and we've covered a lot, I want to draw out three general points or common themes from these accounts. They are very straightforward, very easy to remember. Number one is know your audience. Know know the person to whom you're speaking. 
See, each message here was catered to a distinct group. You had the God-fearing Gentile in his family. You had this intellectual kind of audience and also a hostile religious group. Number two, love your audience. Love your audience. Love the person you're trying to reach. Although they were occasionally aggressive in tone, Peter and Paul had the eternal welfare of the people in mind, and they never, their message never strayed far from the gospel of grace and reconciliation and salvation found in Jesus Christ. So know who you're speaking to, love who you're speaking to. Number three, never sacrifice the truth. Never sacrifice the truth. The response of the crowds or the potential response or the fear of what they might say or do, whether positive or negative, did not affect the apostles' commitment to articulating the truth as it is revealed exclusively in Jesus Christ. So love, know, know who you're speaking to, love who you're speaking to, and never sacrifice the truth. And as a final note, I want to reiterate for us all that what we have just seen is not a mere list of helpful tips and tricks. We aren't going over tactics for propaganda or manipulation. We are bearing witness to that divine drama of Christ and his bride, the church, play out right in front of us. So when the Spirit of God calls on you, or you, or you, or you, to reflect into the world a unique ray of His divine brilliance, you aren't putting on an act or a stage performance. Christ Himself told His disciples, do not worry what you will say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks through you. Which is why I want us to conclude with the thought of beauty. God is not only the source of all being, of all truth, of all goodness, but is also the most awesome and wondrous fount of beauty the world could ever be exposed to. And it is in the very nature of beauty itself to draw those who witness it into the heart of its presence. So as you go out and you wonder how you might illuminate the lives of others, consider this simple injunction. Show the world true beauty as only a Christ-transformed life can. Show the world true beauty as only a Christ-transformed life can. Make it a prescription in your own heart, and God will supply the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that as uh, we receive this message into our own hearts, each as individuals, but also as a community, God, that we would, uh, we would be empowered by your grace, we'd be empowered by your gospel, we'd be empowered by bearing witness to how it transforms itself and how it transforms lives of people, God, and that it brings them closer to you. And there could be no better thing. Let's remember that in our hearts, God, that there can be no greater thing, no pleasure on earth, no enticement, no alternative, no distraction, none of that, no idol, God, that could be better than you. So impress that upon our hearts, encourage us, inspire us, Lord, as we move out today into this beautiful, glorious, sunny day. And I lift up everyone here, God, and I pray that you administer to their needs in grace as uh, only you know how. I pray this again in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.